featuring uh, Jennifer and Steve Bauman, and they've been uh, part of our team, missionary team, for a number of years. As you remember, uh, for years they served in France, uh, but most recently they are in the Phoenix area, and uh, they are with Wycliffe Bible Translation. Uh, and so they continue to do that. And in the, in the past, pre-COVID, they held conferences, uh, you know, in Europe, and I believe they actually had some in some other locations as well. And with COVID, that is no longer on the table, but where, uh, uh, you know, uh, difficult situations emerge, opportunities emerge as well. And so they have been conducting these uh, virtually, and these seminars and, and conferences that they are holding uh, right now, currently, they have about 2,000 people that are participating worldwide. And so it's amazing how opportunities can present themselves. And so there, there are these conferences and uh, workshops that they are conducting are all based around the general theme of Scripture engagement. And they're held two to three times a week. And so it's reaching, reaching many, many people. And so... Uh, Steve and Jennifer, if you remember, originally they came from the uh, Seattle-Tacoma area. And so uh, Steve and Jennifer continue to lead virtually, obviously, uh, an online Bible study with their home church in Tacoma. So 
not being anyone to let grass grow under their feet, there's more. And uh, so Jennifer is teaching an English class to African immigrants uh, at a nearby church and, uh, you know, is encouraging or tra- uh, training and dealing with these people because they're these are immigrants and, and have experienced a significant degree of trauma. And she, she is ministering in that way. In addition, there's more. Okay, she is also involved in, in counseling women with alternatives to abortion. And there's more, but we've got a time constraint going on here. You know, it makes me tired just uh, telling you about all this. And, and so, you know, the Bauman's have been doing this a long time, but it's clear they haven't been slowing down any. So we want to be uh, praying for them, and we're, they are grateful for us. And, you know, we are grateful that we can be aligned with people uh, that are doing God's work throughout the world. So that's a great thing. So we want to be praying for them. Other matters uh, that we should be praying for, uh, Noreen is going to be having knee surgery tomorrow. So we need to be praying for that. We need to pray for Pam Wickheiser. Uh, we also uh, want to be praying for Mike and Alyssa Reeby's daughter, Natalie, who had gallbladder surgery last Monday. I don't really have an update on that as to how she's getting along. Hopefully that's all gone well, and we're going to be praying for her. Uh, other things, other items. Uh, many of you remember the Amos family that were here with us for a number of years. And some of you are familiar with some of the difficulties that, that Chris Amos got into uh, in his uh, time in Japan. Uh, Chris is having a hearing, that's a tribunal, I believe, April 1, and this hearing could very well determine uh, Chris's future in the Navy. And so this is a big deal going on here. And, last but not least, uh, many of you know uh, Sam and Claire Marie were getting some foster kids. Well, they got a couple, and I think there's one more infant that will be on the way. I don't think it's there yet, but they got two foster kids right now. And I want to say four, ages four and five, something like this. Anyway, and so those of us that have kids know that under ideal conditions, parenting is nothing easy. And so you can imagine, in, you know, you get kids under these kind of you know, difficult circumstances that, you know, it's going to be a challenge. And so the, the learning curve for Sam and Claire Marie is extraordinarily steep. And so we need to be praying for them. So... With that in mind, let's go ahead and, and uh, oh, one more thing too. We're going to be praying for Walter Plants, uh, Pastor Walter Plants, dear friend of mine. Many of you know him. Many of you were taught by him in school. Uh, Walter uh, had radiation treatment and therapy for prostate cancer down at Mayo Clinic in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. And so he's recovering from that. We're going to be praying for Walter. So, anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being a loving and caring God who hears us. And, you know, we're grateful to you. We're grateful that, uh, uh, that uh, our prayers make a difference, and we thank you for that. And we call upon you today with gratitude for what you're doing in the Bauman's uh, life and their, and their outreach and ministry to all these different people throughout the world. And we pray you'd bless that. And we pray that you'd be kind uh, to the Bauman's and us uh, that we would see the fruit of their labor uh, and in a visible uh, sense right now. Obviously, we'll see it later, but we would like to see some of that now. 
And we pray for that. And we thank you that you're working in that way. And so continue to bless them in, in all these different areas that, that they are uh, active in. And so for those of us uh, as well here in our, in our midst that are going through medical things, such as Noreen's surgery, we play breast lab for the uh, Pam Wickheiser and the family for, for their situation. We pray for that. We pray for uh, Natalie and her recovery from this gallbladder thing and for Walter and recovering from prostate cancer. We pray for that. Um, we also continue uh, to want to be in prayer uh, over the next couple of weeks for the Amos family and for this hearing that Chris will be uh, uh, having in, uh, on April 1st. And we pray that these people uh, uh, would be kind to the Amos family and there would be a good outcome there. And for uh, Sam and Claire Marie, uh, we pray for uh, stamina and wisdom and insight and uh, you know, just to help them in this way as they are in a whole different arena right now. And uh, they, need, they need a lot of help. And so we pray for that. We, we thank you uh, for uh, people such as them that are willing to undertake such a, a monumental uh, job. And yet, you, you know, we know that in, in, in doing this, you know, this is an opportunity to give these kids uh, a chance at life. And not only a chance at life, but a chance at uh, eternal life as well. You know, this is an opportunity to rescue these kids from uh, a life of almost certain uh, difficulty and, and trouble and trauma. And so we do pray that that would be successful. And uh, we ask your blessing on the rest of our service. Uh, we thank you for it. And we uh, praise you and thank you in all things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've got two more songs. This next one is a new one. It's called Battle... Don't stand up yet. Just wait a second. I'm going to elaborate a little bit here, okay? I mentioned it in Sunday school. I mentioned it before. For you as a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a battle every day. The world is being rushed off in a man-centered, evil way. And Christian, you are called to follow the Lord Jesus. He's our, our chief, good, and great shepherd. And in this new song, there's a number of practical steps in which you can do this battle. Now, I just, all we want to do is uh, learn the new song and have you and I, all of us, to learn more and more what it means when we say the battle is His, the battle is the Lord's. Okay? Let's stand together and we'll uh, do our best to sing it out, help you learn it.
hands lifted high. Oh, God, the battle belongs to you. And every fear I lay at your feet, I'll sing through the night. Oh, God, the battle belongs to you. Stand against the power of our Lord. Almighty fortress, you go before us. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. You shine in the shadows, you win every battle. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. Almighty fortress. You go before us. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. You shine in the shadows. You win every battle. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. So when I fight, I'll fight on my knees with my hands lifted high. Oh, God, the battle belongs to you, and every fear I lay at your feet, I'll sing through the night. Oh, God, the battle belongs to you. So when I fight, I'll fight on my knees, with my hands lifted high. Oh, God, the battle belongs to you, and every fear I'll lay at your feet, I'll sing through the night. Oh, God, the battle belongs to you. Oh, God, the battle belongs to you. Princes and paupers, sons and daughters, kneel at the throne of grace. Losers and winners, saints and sinners, one day we'll see His face, and we all bow down. Kings Savior's name. He is 
Children can be dismissed for Children's Church in the Fellowship Hall. Well, good morning, everyone. If you would take out your Bibles and open up to the end of Romans 11. Our passage today is going to be this great doxology at the end of the doctrinal portion of Romans, where we read in verses 33 through the end of the chapter these words. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we take this opportunity to quiet our hearts before You together. We have Your Word open in front of us. We have the local expression of your body gathered around us. We have your spirit within us. 
We worship you this morning. We give you glory. And we seek to do so even more in light of this passage and what this passage means for us and teaches us about glorifying you, about, in fact, who you are and what you're like. We worship you. We pray that you would speak to us from your word this morning, that we would look into your word and see how wonderful you are. That we would be able to reflect on what we have learned thus far in the epistle to the Romans and all that we've learned, all that we've covered, all that we've touched on, that we would give you glory. And we ask that in doing so, that you also would work in our hearts to lift our minds to you, our hearts and our affections, to lift our eyes to you, that we would see you and behold you, value you and worship you, that we would give you honor, that you would be glorified in our time today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It has been rightly said that theology begins, good theology, begins and ends with doxology. And doxology, of course, is the expression of praise to God. It means to give God glory. And so when we come to think about and we come to discuss, to talk about God... That's theology. When we have thoughts about God and we have opinions about God, that is called theology. We may not like that word or we may not be used to using that word for our own reflections, for our own conversations, but the fact is we all do that. Inasmuch as we have thoughts about God, we do theology, and all good theology begins with doxology, giving God honor and glory And it ends in doxology, giving God honor and glory. And so, as we come to the end of our doctrinal section of Romans, we see that Paul himself bursts into doxology in this last paragraph. That in concluding 11 chapters of doctrine, this is how he chooses to conclude it. And he will move in chapter 12 into very clear application where we see in chapter 12 and verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And then he continues from there. So he's about to move into application. He's about to move into what this means for your day-to-day life and how it changes relationships and it how, uh, changes how you view life in the world. But he concludes, before moving into that, he concludes this great doctrinal treatise by giving God glory. He concludes with doxology, realizing, recognizing, and lifting up God for who he is. And there's some discussion amongst uh, scholars about what exactly he's concluding. Is he just concluding 
chapters 9, 10, and 11 in this great discussion about about God's sovereignty and salvation and how that works together and and how salvation is by grace through faith to Jew and to Gentile alike and, and then how actually God has worked throughout history with Israel and with Gentiles to bring one to faith and then to bring the other to faith and how He's wrapping all things up in Him. Is it just that section that he's concluding with this great doxology that that we have seen God's sovereignty, God's holiness, God's work in saving people in in these ways, in chapters 9, 10, and 11? Maybe that's what has caused him to, to be raised to glorify God in this way. And I think that's likely. But I think it's also important for us to recognize that this is how he concludes the entire doctrinal section. This is how he concludes all of what he has taught to this point. If we remember back in chapter 1 already, we saw those difficult words where we, we see sin has traveled into all the world and it's expressed itself in particular ways amongst the Gentiles in such a way that the Gentiles are wrapped up, they're enclosed in sin. And then he moves on in later chapters, in chapter 2 and even into chapter 3, and saying that Israel has been wrapped up in sin also. It may have expressed itself in different ways, but yet each one is under sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not just the Gentiles, not just the pagans off in their corner or in their parts of the world where they sin the way they do, but, but even Israel, even the Jews are wrapped up in sin. And so the situation starts out bleak. But then, of course, he moves into the end of chapter 3 in that great passage there where he talks about how salvation is given by God. The righteousness of God, righteousness that is pleasing to God, is actually a gift from God that's ours by faith. That We are justified before God by grace through faith. And this isn't a new thing. We saw this in the Old Testament as well, as we looked in chapter 4, we saw that it was true in the case of Abraham. It was true in the case of David. That God has been saving people by grace through faith from the beginning. And that's important because all men are wrapped up under sin. They're enclosed. They've been fenced in, hemmed in into sin. And he explains, of course, in chapter 5 how Jesus comes on the scene in light of the fact that Adam was first and Adam fell into sin and thus everyone who's in Adam is in sin, is wrapped up under that sin, into that steps Jesus who acts as a federal head that his, his actions will have benefit, will have consequence on those who will be in Christ. That his obedience to God His righteousness is counted as righteousness for those who are in Christ. That His sacrificial death counts as a substitutionary atonement for those who are in Christ, paying the penalty for our sins. That in Christ, we have redemption. In Adam, we had judgment. In Christ, we have redemption. And so... He spells that out for us in chapter 5, and he says in in chapter 6 that affects how we relate to sin, that no longer is sin our master. We don't have to bow the knee to sin anymore. We've been set free from that. We are now in Christ, and sin is our former master, not our current master. Well, that affects how we relate to the law as well. 
that the law is given to those who are in Adam, to those who are in sin, and the product in their life is further sin. It's like a mirror that reveals the sin that's there. And actually, even worse than that, it's a, it, it's a kind of mirror, but that makes sin increase. So, in Christ, we have been set free from that law, where that law as that condemning mirror is no longer ours. That our relationship to the law is totally different. We now, who are in Christ, we see the law, we relate to the law differently. That, in fact, we get to have the law as our instruction for what it looks like to obey God. It's not a condemning law that we have to measure up to, that we have to, to meet this standard in order to be right with God. But in fact, it's instruction for us for what it means to walk with God now that we are in Christ, now that we have forgiveness, now that our relationship with Him is secure. This is what it looks like to honor Him in our lives. And we saw into chapter 8 how God hasn't left us alone in that. He's given us His Spirit who lives within us. The Spirit who walks with us, who blesses us, who guides us, who's, who empowers us, who applies these things to us, who even prays for us when we don't know how to pray. And then we looked at chapter 9 and God's sovereignty and salvation, how those things work together. We looked at chapter 10 and we saw that justification is by grace through faith to Jew first and to Gentile. And then in chapter 11, you see this great working of history that God has been applying these things in all of history. Not just in one corner of the world, not just with one people group, not just in one time period, but in all of history. He's been bringing this salvation step by step and in different ways, brought at different times and using different means to accomplish his ends. But the end is God has consigned all to disobedience. Chapter 1, 2, 3 that he may have mercy on all, as we see in chapter 11. And so Paul has been spending this time explaining his gospel, spelling out for us what the gospel is, what it means that we have good news in Christ, what it means to have salvation in Christ. He's been spelling this out for us for chapters and we've spent years looking into this. We've spent months diving into and examining all that's taught here. But this hasn't just been a theological exercise. This hasn't just been us trying to think smart things or something like that. This has been much more than just an intellectual or an academic exercise. Paul has spent 11 chapters working through, wrestling through, and explaining to us how salvation works. C can there be a more important topic than salvation? Can there be something more profound and important for us to hear and understand than salvation? And he has labored over this for 11 chapters. And there are, there are some teachers who would say that Paul has exhausted, particularly in 9, 10, and 11 with these very complex and controversial issues that Paul has exhausted his own thinking. He's, he's gotten to the end of his rope. He's gone as far as he can. And so he throws up his hands and he says, well, I've thought all I can think. Now I'm going to just rejoice by faith. And so he says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Bursts into doxology that he turns away from thinking and says, I've thought all I can. 
I've explained all I can. I've dug down as far as I can into this topic. That's all I've got. It ends in mystery. It ends in difficulty. I don't get it anymore. So I'm just going to close that up and come over here and just worship. And I think that's a wrong-headed view of what Paul does. Paul has been laboring to explain. He has, he has laid it out for us chapter after chapter, all things connected with this salvation and what it means in the individual heart and what it means in the big picture of history. He's laid all of that out and it drives him to doxology. It brings him to the place where he doesn't have to turn away from what he has thought. He doesn't have to turn away from these things that have been revealed to him as an apostle and that he has written down for us in Scripture. He doesn't have to turn away from that to worship. He worships in light of that. He has been brought to a place where he understands better who this God is that he's worshiping. We understand better who this God is that we are worshiping, that this salvation has been laid out for us, spelled out for us, not just so we can have an academic discussion that we can finally end and now have our time of praise. It's been laid out for us so that we understand better why we're praising God. What is this salvation we're rejoicing in? Who is this God we are glorifying? And who are we that we get to glorify this God? And so he ends his doctrinal treatise with these words. At the end of chapter 11, this great doxology, this great rejoicing and praising God, giving God glory for who he is and for what he's done. And so he says, Oh, the depths, the riches, and the wisdom and knowledge of God. The, the O is important. This is not just point B is God has deep riches or anything. This is O. This is rejoicing. This is spontaneous, as it were. This is Him celebrating what He has written down, celebrating what has been revealed to Him, celebrating who this God is. And He says, first of all, not only are there indescribable depths, uh, but the immeasurable resources. There's discussion about whether this is supposed to be three things or two things. Is it deep uh, wisdom and knowledge or rich wisdom and knowledge or is it riches and wisdom and knowledge? Well, God has immeasurable resources. Immeasurable resources. What, what does God have at His disposal to accomplish His purposes? I mean, what, what really resources does He have? You know, if, if you think about yourself, have you ever thought about the fact and thanked God for your limited resources? I thank God for my limited resources. Because there have been times in my life where had I had unlimited resources, I would have been in certain destruction. I would have just expressed my desires to the nth degree. And you saw this happen with the collapse of the Soviet Union and suddenly there were billionaires who... Uh, you know, weeks before had been regular Joes and now they've got billions of dollars and so they buy a yacht the size of the Atlantic Ocean and they, they do this thing and they end up just destroying their lives and their family and everyone near them because they had unlimited resources. I praise God for my limited resources because I've not been able to express throughout my life some of those things that I really would like to have 
and might have ended up in destruction. But God Himself has unlimited resources, everything at His disposals. Psalm 50 tells us that He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's a lot of cattle. And He could sell some of those and He could buy what He wants to buy. He has unlimited resources. When Jesus calmed the storm, do you remember what His disciples said of Him? They were filled with great fear and they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? Not only does He have financial resources or, or whatever, uh, resources of that sense, material resources, but He could even tell the wind and the waves to do stuff and they do it for Him. That nature is at His disposal. That even they obey Him. He has unlimited Resources And actually, Psalm 19 tells us the very heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. It does what He tells them to do. That God has unlimited resources. The weather, we talked about this in prayer meeting on Wednesday night, that, that the enemy can come in and he can use weather and he can use natural things for certain. And then Jesus can come in and say, be still. And they're still. Health? What about your health? Have you ever been blessed because of a bad health situation? Many of us have. Many of us have. What, what else is at his disposal? The actions of good people? Certainly. How about the actions of bad people? Does God get to use those? Are they his resources? And on and on. World governments are at his disposal. He gets to use them. The heart of the king is like a stream of water in his hand. He turns it wherever he wills. He has all resources at his disposal to accomplish his good purposes. He has immeasurable resources and he has immeasurable wisdom. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom. For us, wisdom means living life in light of who God is. Arranging our world in light of who God is. And therefore, things work this way. I understand how to, how to think about life, arrange my life in light of who God is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if you don't have the fear of the Lord, you haven't even taken step one in wisdom. Wisdom has to do with us arranging uh, our understanding of the world, living life in view of who God is. But for God, it means arranging everything according to Him being at the top and everything else being at His disposal. In other words, it's both knowing what ought to be accomplished and how to accomplish that thing. It's the how-to to bring to pass His righteous decree to make Himself known for who He truly is. He has all resources at His disposal. And He has all wisdom for how to accomplish His ends, His Wisdom is immeasurable, as is his knowledge. Oh, the depth, the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. I, I enjoy learning things. I enjoy learning new things and not just factoids and dates and that stuff can be mildly interesting. I enjoy learning how to do things and I enjoy knowledge and and, uh, and many of us do. You know, in our particular area, I had a, a college roommate who... Uh, grew up, never had a TV in his house till he was 12. And so he, um, 
And of course, then he started watching TV at 12 and everything he memorized. So he could quote to you episodes of shows that he had seen starting from the time he was 12. So the whole thing kind of backfired a little bit because now he had this memory where he could just remember everything. But so he, he, he struggled in school. It wasn't easy for him. But if you ask about any baseball player and any baseball player statistics for any given year, he could tell you batting average and whatever else. He just knew it because he cared about that. That was important to him. I think we all like to learn in our particular areas. What, what knowledge is at God's disposal? All of it. Literally, all of it is at his disposal. All the knowledge that is or ever will be or ever has been is at his disposal. He doesn't learn it. I like to learn. He doesn't learn knowledge. He doesn't gain new information. He knows it. He knows all things. He doesn't find out new things. He knows our thoughts. He knows our intentions. Even the ones we don't know. He knows our fears. The things we would rather other people didn't see. He knows those things. There's no secret thing that God doesn't already know about us, about our heart, about our intentions, about our past and our present and our future. He knows all things. He knows what purposes are best to accomplish. He knows how to accomplish those purposes. And he has literally all resources at his disposal to accomplish them. And so Paul, at the end of this magnificent tour through the gospel and through salvation, says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom, and knowledge of God. His, the depths are immeasurable, and His ways are inscrutable. First of all, His determinations. Look what He says here. He continues on in verse 33, How unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable His ways. His, his determinations, his judgments, what does that mean? He determines what will be. He makes decisions. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases, Psalm 115.3. He's the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. So when Paul speaks here of God's judgments, I believe he's speaking of the ends, the goal that God is shooting at, the decisions, the determinations that God makes. So I think when he says here how unsearchable are his judgments, I think that's what he's talking about. We've just done a tour in chapter 11 about how God has worked in history with people groups in ways that we couldn't comprehend for working with Abraham and his offspring. And then Messiah comes and and, and then he begins to work primarily with the Gentiles. And in so doing, he ends up drawing back in Israel. Did we have God working in ways that are inscrutable in, in making determinations and judgments and decisions that are beyond our grasping? He's that great. He works in the broad scheme of thousands of years of history. He works in all of creation. And He works in your heart. He has that kind of 
power. He makes those kind of determinations, those kind of judgments. And one thing that ought to stand out to us in this section of Romans is that the top priority for God in the salvation of sinners is to make known the riches of His glory. He has a purpose for doing so. And that purpose is to make known His own glory. That's what uh, you read when you go through Ephesians chapter 1 as you read through another dense doctrinal section, Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3. And in chapter 1, he's spelling out all of these blessings, these spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. And they're magnificent and they're wonderful. And you should take some time this afternoon and read Ephesians chapter 1. And three times in there, he explains why God is lavishing us with such gifts that are unimaginable, that, that are so rich that are powerful, that are enduring, that are massive, that we can't comprehend and we certainly don't deserve. And three times in Ephesians 1, he explains why he does so. It's for the praise of his glorious grace. Why has he lavished such blessings on us? Well, of course, they bless us. Of course, they're useful in this world. Those are all true. But ultimately, the reason is, the purpose is, the praise of His glorious grace. And that's what we see in this section of Romans also, that God has been at work savingly in individuals and in nations in history for the praise of His glorious grace. These are His determinations. God's value structure has His own glory at the top of His priority list. So first, His determinations. And secondly, His methods. He says, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways, meaning his methods, what he goes through to accomplish his ends, to accomplish his judgments, to accomplish his determinations, what he goes after. God has been at work, not just making a plan, not just having a goal. It's well and good to have a goal. But you've got to have a plan of how to get there. You've got to know how you're going to accomplish that goal. And those are his methods, and that is what God has, is his own plans, his own goals, and his own methods for how to accomplish that. It's the, the practical steps to take to reach that goal. And that's what we've been examining all through Romans 1 through 11. How has God accomplished this? Particularly as we've gotten into recent chapters, how has he brought this about? What methods has he used? Well, as we've looked through, we've seen that not all of his methods have been very comfortable. Sometimes God shows mercy to the undeserving. Sometimes he gives them justice instead. He can even do such a thing as give a spirit of stupor. In chapter 11 and verse 8, and we saw last week in verse 32 that he consigns all to disobedience in order that he might have mercy on all. He uses means that can be uncomfortable. His methods are not the ones necessarily that we would have chosen. But God is at work on a scale and at a level that we can't comprehend. And these are some of the methods, some of the ways that he has used. And Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. His ways and his means, his 
goals, his judgments and determinations, they are beyond scrutiny. Beyond scrutiny. There's a word that I've skipped over a couple of times. How unsearchable. How inscrutable. His wisdom, His knowledge, His holiness, His glory are beyond our ability to weigh and measure. They are beyond our ability to pass judgment upon. They are deep. Oh, the depths. They're deep. We can't see to the bottom. We can't penetrate all the way down. We can't measure all the way there. We can't get a grasp on the entirety of it. It's too deep. And since they go that deep, deeper than we can see, deeper than we can measure, we aren't in a position to sit in judgment over those ways. We can recognize they are uncomfortable for us, but the Lord says in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, He addresses this impassable distance and difference between us and creation, or between us as His creation and Him as our Creator, and He says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We would never have arrived at the conclusions Paul gives us without revelation from God. We could not, we would not ever have reasoned from where we are to these things Paul has told us on our own, from the ground working that direction. Paul, as an apostle of God, receiving revelation from God, this mystery that we talked about, it's been revealed to him by God, and so God speaks to us things that we could never have figured out on our own, things that we would never have planned the way they are, but this is God speaking to us on these topics. His ways are inscrutable, and his mind is impenetrable. He continues on. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For the benefit of our Sunday school class where we've been talking about hermeneutics and talking about rhetorical questions, we recognize rhetorical questions. These questions are asked not uh, what's the answer? Is it this or this? Not looking for an answer. The answer is implied. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Nobody. Not one of us. Who's been his counselor? Not me. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? None of us. So first of all, who can comprehend him? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has known his mind? You know, one of the disservices we give each other quite frequently, is we ascribe motive to other people, right? We see someone else do something, and perhaps it's something against us, or it irks us, or whatever, and, and we have a tendency to think, yeah, they're trying to get me, or they did this for this, they were just being selfish. We ascribe to them what their motive is, right? And the, the ironic thing is, when I do something bad, what's my first, you know, objection? Well, but, you know, I, I meant something good, <laughs> I was trying to accomplish good things. My heart was right. My heart was in the right place when I did that bad thing, right? We give ourselves that benefit of the doubt. We have a tendency to ascribe to others evil motive. Well, what's the difficulty? Not, not only have I been unfair, not only is that hypocrisy, but I don't know what your motive is until you tell me. 
I can make some assumptions. I can guess. I can, I can think I've got it about figured out. But I can't know what your motive is until you tell me. Well, how much more so with God? If we're peers, we're, we're just humans. We're just sinners who've been redeemed. And we have trouble understanding one another's motive. And we're on the same plane. How much more do we struggle to understand the motives of God unless He tells us? We know what we do of God's mind because He tells us in the Bible. We're in a situation as creatures. We're very small. Our minds are very small. We have limited capacity. We are creatures, not, not the Creator. So we're categorically different from Him. And so we require revelation from Him. We require that He tell us things so that we can know them. Particularly when it comes to aspects about who He is. Because He is unlimited. He is infinite and eternal and holy. And we are the opposite of those things. And so we struggle to understand what He's like. And we can, we can reason, wow, God must be like this. And, and we can talk and we can wonder and, and we can argue about what God is like. But that's why He's given us His Word. As revelation to us. To settle the argument. What's God like? And we could fumble around and, and, and uh, imagine and think. And that's what world religions do. And then the Bible speaks and says, let me solve that. This is what I'm like. You require me, because, because you're finite and fallen, you require me, the Creator, to tell you what is true about me. Who can comprehend Him? Who has known the mind of the Lord? We understand of His mind what He tells us of His mind. But everything else, we don't know. We don't. He's that great. He's that much above us. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who can comprehend Him? And secondly, who can counsel Him? Who has been His counselor? Who's given advice to Him? When, uh, as, as pastors, we uh, often, and actually all Christians do this to one degree or another, but you end up counseling with people. They come to you with their, with their problems. They've got a difficulty they're working through. And inevitably, the, you know, the, the answer you give them is different, probably, than the one they had hoped it would be though they usually suspect in the back of their minds. But, but what you do in counseling is there's no magic. There's no, uh, you know, there's no secret book that you can look up and find the right answer other than this one right here, and it's not a secret book, right? But what happens is you listen to the person talk. You listen to what they think, how they're processing, what they believe about God, what they believe about themselves, what they value, and you listen to that for a while. And then, and then you, you try to bring the Bible to bear on those subjects. You're struggling with this, a uh, crippling fear in your life. Did, did you know that really the only thing you're to fear is God himself? And here's what he's like. And so you don't have to fear this other thing because God is actually in charge of that other thing. And so you don't have to live in fear. And so we try to assess, we try to understand what a person says, to understand what's going on in their, in their broken thinking, their sinful thinking, and, and, uh, and the, the things that they're not believing that are uh, truth about who God is. We examine that and then try to bring the Bible to bear on that. That's, that's counseling. That's giving advice. We don't just know good things to tell people. Well, who's done that to God? You know, uh, God, I see that you're making these decisions, and so no one has ever spoken to God like that. 
Though I'll bet if I took a show of hands, it's possible that uh, many of us have already counseled God this morning in prayer. It would be better, God, if you did this thing, right? We do that, don't we? God knows what is best, and we don't. And we don't. Who has been his counselor? No one has been his counselor. Who can obligate him? Who can obligate him? Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? What could we give God that he needs or that he doesn't already have? Anything? Money? Should I give him my money and then that would be good because he needs it, doesn't already have it? Well, well, no. I have money that I have because God gave it to me. It's already His. So when I give money back to the church, when I give money uh, to Him in some way, I'm not giving Him something that obligates Him to me at all. It was already His from the beginning because all things are His. We've already said that He has immeasurable resources. Maybe I could give Him my life. Something that He doesn't already have and something that he needs. Maybe I would give him my life and that would obligate him to me. That would mean that he owes me something. No. That, that wouldn't make him indebted to me at all. He, he's the one who gave me life. Not even my parents gave me life. I certainly didn't give it to myself. And they didn't even give it to me. God gave me life. It is his life already. What about my obedience? Would that obligate him if I give him my obedience? If I do the things that he says, if I do things to, to please him, does that obligate him to me? Well, no, as his creation, I already owe him all obedience by virtue of the fact that he created me. So I'm not giving him something new. I'm not making him obligated to me. It's not something he's going to have to repay me. Obedience is something that all of his creatures owe him already. Giving the gift of my obedience wouldn't make him indebted to me. It's merely discharging some of the debt that I already have to him. If I were to do that. What about my worship? Well, I owe him that. He's my creator. He's worthy of my worship. That's something I already owe him. What about my faith? Well, I already owe him that. All of his creation owes him that. I'm not, I'm not obligating him to me. I'm not making it so that he has to give something back, so that he has to repay something. He already has everything. He already deserves everything. Everything is already from him. What about my love? He deserves that already. It ought to be his because he is my creator. So when I love him, I'm not giving him something new that causes him to be indebted to me at all. I owe him my love by virtue of who he is and by virtue of who I am as his creature. There is literally, literally nothing that I could do or give to God that would obligate him to me. And so at the conclusion of this great treatise on theology, or diving into the gospel to depths that nowhere else in Scripture matches and to with such detail, such specificity, such clarity about how the gospel works at the conclusion of all of that, Paul is brought to a place where he is recognizing God is glorious. God 
is glorious. I said at the beginning that all good theology begins and ends with doxology. It starts from a place when we begin to think about God of us recognizing He's God and I'm not. And so I worship Him. I praise Him. And then we study God. We think about God. We, 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 we look at what He's written in Scripture about Himself. And when we come to the end of that, all good theology will lead us back to a place where we say, and God is even more glorious than I thought. I understand even more clearly and more fully, He is God, and I'm not. I'm but His creature, His creation. And He is wonderful, almighty. He is wiser than I thought. He is more powerful than I thought. His ways are deeper than I thought. He is more than I thought. And so I give Him glory, and I worship Him, and I bow down to Him. And that's what has happened for Paul. At the end of this tour through theology, at the end of spelling out for us what, what God has done for us in Christ, what this salvation means for us, and what it means about God at the conclusion of all of that. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? It's all about Him. Which is how He concludes. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. And so Paul ends this treatise not with the end, not with let's put the theology away and go to worship. Not with, oh, I'm frustrated because I can't stand it all or, or I can't understand it all. He doesn't, he doesn't end and, and turn the page from the theology. The theology itself, the study of who God is, the revelation of what this glorious gospel is, what has been done for us and accomplished for us in Christ, drives him to the point where he doesn't close the page at all. He, he rejoices in light of what is there, giving God glory for these facts, recognizing who God is. So there are a couple of points of application for us that have to do with how we think about God. In our own theology, in our own desire to learn, to have knowledge, if we're brought to a place at the end of our theology, at the end of our thinking about God, at the end of our study, where our heart is kind of cold and our brain is kind of full, we've not done our theology right. We've not thought about God the way we ought to think about God. And we need to be careful of that. That the study of theology is not just something someone did in seminary once or, or something like that. It is any time we think about God, we are doing theology. And it ought to 
bring us to that point. It ought to lead us to that point of doxology, of giving glory to God. And we need to do that. And so if we find ourselves in thinking about God frustrated or full up already, done with it, move on to something else, we're not doing our theology right. It should begin with doxology. It should end with doxology. And true theology will always do that. Secondly, our thoughts about God, our thoughts about salvation, our thoughts about how the Christian life works, about how God has revealed Himself to us and who He has revealed Himself to be, our thoughts about those things should send us away encouraged because of who God is, not because of who I am. As we read through all of Romans 1 through 11, we see that, that, that we come up in the story a lot, don't we? And, and we're not usually the, the hero <laughs> ever in the story. We're involved in the story and we receive blessings in the story. And those blessings are from God. They are brought to us by God. And they are to the end that we glorify God with them. They are for His glory. And so all true theology ought to bring, bring us to a place where when we come to the end of it, God is more glorious in our minds and we are encouraged. We are lifted up. We are built up. We are challenged because of who God is and what He has done. Not because of me. And so if I'm doing my theology that way, where I, I am looking for me in the text, I'm just looking for encouraging things about me, in Romans you're going to be frustrated. In the Bible in general you're going to be frustrated. If you're looking for yourself, you will be there and uh, not as the hero. We should come away rejoicing in what God has done in Jesus. This salvation we have is from Him, it is through Him, and it is to Him. And it ought to direct our attention to Him. It ought to direct our hearts to Him, our minds, our eyes, our thoughts directed towards God because of our thoughts about God. And that's a challenge for us because I like to joke that I'm the center of the world. And we run into conflict because you are also, right? <laughs> We're not the center of the world. We think we are. We, we like to act like, a, like we are, and our, our sinful nature, of course, says we are. God is the center of the world. And true theology will take us back to that where Paul ends up rejoicing in, glorying in who God is, how God has worked, His His unsearchable judgments, His inscrutable ways, the, the depths of of the riches, the wisdom, the knowledge of God. We come away from our theology rejoicing in God. We come away from our Bible study rejoicing in God. We come away from our time on a Sunday morning rejoicing in God and what He has accomplished. That's my goal for us today. That's, that's my goal for us in, uh, in any sermon. That's my goal in my own heart when I open His Word, when I think about God. I want him to be the center. And I believe that's the conclusion Paul comes to here at the end of this. Next week, we're going to take 
uh, verse, the, the last verse there, 36, and we're going to spell out that a little bit more, but I want to rejoice with Paul in who God is. I want to be amazed with him. I want the theology that we've studied, the things that we've talked about together to cause us all to fall down on our knees before him, celebrating him and what he's done. Let's pray. Father, we have scratched the surface of your glory in the gospel, your saving work on our behalf. We celebrate you. We worship you. We give you glory. I pray that as we go from here, we would remember this passage, that we would be drawn to worship you and give, your glory, give you glory throughout our day, that you would be central in our own thinking because of what we've learned here. Be lifted up. Be glorified. And draw us to yourself, we pray. Father, I want to pray also this morning for uh, little Luke Odell, who's suffering, and uh, his infection is getting worse, and he's in the hospital. I pray for your blessing on him, and on his mom, and his dad, and his siblings, that even in the midst of this suffering, their eyes would be turned to you. Their hearts would be turned to you, and they would trust in you, knowing that you can even use bad health. You can even use infections for your glory and even for their good. May we see all of life that way. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There will be a family up front to pray with you if you want to come and pray with them. I want to close us with these words from Romans chapter 16. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. God bless you all and you're dismissed.